I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we're here to discuss Smith versus Trump. This is a lawsuit filed in 2016 in the D.C. District Court on behalf of Captain Nathan Michael Smith, a U.S. Army captain deployed in Kuwait. The lawsuit argues that the president and his administration were violating the Constitution by conducting military operations against ISIS in Iraq and Syria without obtaining congressional authorization. The original plaintiff was President Obama. Uh, he has now been replaced by President Trump. And in this important discussion, we will talk about the constitutional arguments on both sides of this case. Joining us to discuss it are two of America's leading thinkers on national security law. Bruce Ackerman is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale Law School. He is helping to represent Captain Smith in the Smith versus Trump case. And Chris Fonzone is former Deputy White House Counsel and National Security Counsel Legal Advisor under President Obama. He helped to defend the case while working for the Obama administration. Bruce, Chris, thank you so much for joining. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Bruce, you were in court uh, just last week arguing this case. Uh, tell us as uh, concisely as you can, what are the facts and what, what is uh, Captain Smith's uh, constitutional argument against, uh, against the war? Well, the uh, uh, basic question is uh, whether uh, uh, the President Obama uh, can unilaterally initiate hostilities against uh, the Islamic State um, without uh, ever, uh, he began and uh, he did, he uh, opened up a, 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 an open-ended campaign on September 10th, 2014, and uh, for the rest of his administration, he never published an opinion explaining to uh, the American people why his actions were legal under the Constitution. Um, uh, there are two uh, 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 central uh, uh, legal consciences, as it were, of uh, the executive branch. Uh, the leading one is the Office of Legal Counsel, and the second one is the White House Counsel. Neither of these uh, bodies published an opinion to explain why this unilateral action by the president um, uh, uh, was consistent with his responsibility under the Constitution to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Uh, and the laws here are, as you were suggesting, uh, the constitutional grant of power to Congress and not the president to declare war. That's what the Constitution says. And then in 1973, um, the uh, Congress uh, uh, passed a statute uh, uh, in its capacity as uh, invoking the Necessary and Proper Clause to make clear uh, the limits of presidential war-making in a world that the founders could not contemplate, a world in which we had uh, bases throughout the world, uh, where we were the dominant uh, military power in the world. Uh, and what the War Powers Resolution uh, says is that the president can initiate hostilities for 60 days. Uh, 
But uh, during that time, he has an obligation to uh, gain congressional majority, congressional support for his uh, new war. Uh, if he fails to, he must uh, uh, withdraw the forces in 30 days. Um, now, President Obama um, recognized that this uh, uh, that the, has, has never uh, challenged uh, the constitutionality of this uh, 60-30 day provision. Uh, and uh, uh, he uh, notified Congress on September uh, 25th, uh, uh, a couple of weeks after he told the American people uh, that he was beginning an open-ended war. He notified Congress that, or rather, he asserted in a, 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 uh, in a, a, a notice to the Speaker of the House and the, and, and the head of the Senate uh, that um, the authorizations for the use of force of 2001 and 2002 against uh, uh, in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, sufficed to satisfy his decision to initiate uh, a new war uh, in 2014 against an organization, the Islamic State, which everyone on the public record recognizes only came into existence in 2004. So, uh, if this decision is allowed to stand, uh, um, this will serve as a precedent not only for President Trump, but for any future president, simply to assert without an opinion of a serious legal kind and without providing any evidence public, to the public that, um, um, uh, he, that the authorization for the use of force of 2001 uh, uh, will justify an attack uh, on uh, in southern uh, Africa, which has recently occurred, uh, or perhaps uh, an attack on uh, um, uh, 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 terrorists uh, in um, Mexico or some other place. Um, so this is a, a, a we're at a crucial turning point. Uh, if uh, the uh, uh, courts don't intervene and uh, insist that uh, uh, President Obama or, the, or that the president has to justify in a serious legal way his uh, uh, initiation of new wars. Uh, president Obama has left to President Trump a precedent uh, that uh, will be used uh, to continue uh, unilateral presidential uh, uh, war making into the indefinite future. Many thanks for that. Uh, Chris, um, Bruce says that the pre president's decision to invoke the authorization of the use of military force against al-Qaeda after 9-11 can't plausibly be applied to ISIS because ISIS and al-Qaeda are at odds. Why did President Obama conclude that the post-9-11 resolution was a legitimate authorization? for the war against ISIS. Sure, thanks, Jeff. I think that uh, just to, to step back a, a, a little bit on that question, so uh, ISIS, um, the U.S. has was engaged in hostilities against al-Qaeda in Iraq from the, about 2003, 2004 to 2011. I think that there, as far as I'm aware, there was never really 
much of a um, much legal uh, much of a legal question raised about those hostilities. And there was then sort of an interregnum when there wasn't as much uh, wasn't as much action between the U.S. and, and Al Qaeda in Iraq. But again, in 2014, because of the rise of ISIS, uh, the U.S. resumed hostilities, and, and ISIS is basically a successor group to Al Qaeda in Iraq. So I think the administration thought there were two statutory legal bases for for the use of force against uh, ISIS at the time known as ISIL when uh, we started hostilities in Iraq and Syria. So I, I would uh, divert. Uh, differ from Pre uh, Professor Ackerman saying it was unilateral action. I think the, the president believed his actions were with the endorsement of Congress, which is why the 60-day um, provision in the War Powers Resolution was not implicated. And those two theories are one under the 2001 AUMF. I think the theory is, and, and the administration in an interpretation of that AUMF endorsed by both the Congress and, and the courts has said it covers Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces. The view is that Al-Qaeda in Iraq was an associated force of, of um, Al-Qaeda, and, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq's leader uh, basically pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda accepted that as under the mantle of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It, 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 it uh, waged hostilities against the United States for that period from 2004 to 2011, and uh, then they changed their name to the Islamic State of, of Iraq and the Levant and now to ISIS. Um, yes, there's been a rift between ISIS and Al-Qaeda, but the, the rift was really about who was the, the true successor to bin Laden's mantle. And I think the view of the executive branch was that uh, just by a, a inter, sort of an intra-Al-Qaeda rift among two factions could not remove one of the factions from the statutory grant of authority the, the Congress granted to the president. And that the thought there would be that that would give, in some ways, the hostile forces against who were engaged in hostilities control over the scope of the armed conflict, and that didn't that didn't seem to be what Congress would have intended. Uh, the second potential statutory basis was the 2002 Iraq AUMF, and the text there basically said um, that it authorized the president to defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq. Uh, but of course, uh, Saddam Hussein was deposed in 2002, 2003, 2004. Uh, soon after that was passed, um, and the United States continued to wage hostilities in Iraq for a number of years after that. And I think it was the implied authority Congress granted not just to uh, address the threat posed by Iraq, but also uh, once if there was uh, either a threat to the United States or a threat to Iraq or a threat to the stability of Iraq uh, caused by the original hostilities, the United States was had the authority to remain there and um, continue to wage hostilities and, and, and respond to that. So I think under both of those theories, uh, the United States would have had the authority and, and did with, with little objection from Congress or elsewhere, wage hostilities against this group from 2004 to 2011. And the thought was once the group became a threat again, um, the United States uh, resumed hostilities under the same two statutes that had not been repealed. And then just one final point is that I know there's language in the War Powers Resolution that says appropriations by themselves can't constitute uh, statutory authorization, but I think the, the, the thought would be that with full public knowledge and congressional knowledge that, that the executive branch was relying on these two statutes, Congress has specifically and repeatedly funded uh, operations against ISIL, which would seem to be an endorsement of the executive branch's theories. 
Great. Thank you for summarizing those arguments so well. Uh, You've told us uh, first that the government thinks that the 2001 authorization authorizes the operation against ISIL. Second, that this 2002 authorization uh, in Iraq also covers the case. And finally, that this unbroken stream of appropriations, as the Department of Justice argues in its brief, also offers independent congressional authorization. But then at the end, as you, you note, and Marty Lederman's uh, blog uh, summarizes many of the same arguments that uh, the question, uh, although the administration argues that members of Congress approve of the operation, the, 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 the central, a central question in the case is whether these appropriations also serve as an authorization that would supersede the requirements of the War Powers Resolution. So, Bruce, your response. Absolutely. Well, uh, if you actually um, look at the uh, appropriations measures, uh, 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 which are, of course, very lengthy documents, um, but if you, uh, and I have with my uh, outstanding group of uh, Yale Law students, (laughs) six of them, um, you find explicit disclaimers uh, that uh, um, the authorization of funds um, for um, the uh, uh, war against ISIL shall not constitute approval under the War Powers Resolution. So it isn't necessary to look at this general presumption created by the uh, War Powers Resolution. In fact, the statutes themselves explicitly say don't interpret the grant of funds as authorization. Turning to the second uh, argument about the 2002 authorization, uh, 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 there is the following fact. On uh, July 25th, uh, uh, 2016, uh, 2000, sorry, 2014, uh, two months before the president uh, invoked the 2002 authorization uh, for uh, 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 combat against uh, Saddam Hussein's regime. Uh, On July 25th, um, uh, National Security Advisor Rice sent a formal letter in the name of the administration on White House stationery to the Speaker of the House and uh, the uh, um, uh, President of the Senate uh, explicitly stating that for the past three years, the, uh, uh, the troops, uh, the 2000, well, explicitly stating since December 2011, the authorization of 2002 no longer supports any operations in Iraq, period. Um, uh, this was uh, put into the congressional record. Um, then, in, uh, in the middle of 2015, it was mysteriously erased. Our, uh, my research assistants found it only by the Wayback Machine, uh, where it is there. Um, uh, and there are, until it was disappeared from the official record, um, uh, uh, there was commentary on it and things of this kind. There's no question but that uh, uh, Congress uh, was aware of the fact that in, on uh, uh, July 25th, the administration's position was expressly this 
2002 resolution no longer supports any use of force, and indeed, uh, Secretary Rice said, the administration supports its repeal, quote-unquote. How then uh, can the President of the United States assert that 2002 uh, uh, has suddenly been revived two months later? Now, my claim here is not, and Captain Smith's claim as well, my claim here is not um, that um, there may or may not be an answer to this question. I don't think there is, but that's just my opinion. My claim is that in the light of this dramatic inconsistency, it was an obligation of the administration not to just talk vaguely about what the administration thinks without putting it on paper and explaining precisely the argument which would justify um, uh, the proposition which is required in order to invoke the 2002 um, uh, authorization for the use of force, uh, required that an explicit statement by the administration on White House stationery in, uh, in July uh, that disclaims any um, further reliance on the 2002 resolution for three years can justify the continuation the a new war. Um, sufficiently so that the president doesn't have to get a, an authorization for this new war. Similarly, as to the 2001 uh, resolution, uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, the administration and no spokesman of the administration has ever confronted the following facts. Um, the uh, President Bush, it should be noted that President Bush complied with the War Powers Resolution. Um, uh, whatever else one wants to say, he complied both in 2001 and 2002. Um, and indeed, when President Obama uh, uh, ran for um, uh, the presidency in 2007-2008, he was already very much critical of the administration's ex extension of the 2001 and 2002 resolutions. Um, uh, that was, and he attacked them during the campaign. Um, but the two, uh, the, immediately after um, uh, the tragedy of 9-11, uh, President Bush uh, initially proposed in his authorization for the use of force, not only that it authorized uh, the president and the commander-in-chief to um, attack a persons and organizations and governments that were directly involved in um, uh, the 9-11 attack, but also to deter any organization uh, that uh, threatened, uh, 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 any terrorist organization that threatened future attacks. This was explicitly rejected by the Congress, even at this moment of, you know, terrible tragedy where the country was united against uh, the uh, uh, terrorists. This was understood to be too much of a carte blanche to the president. And rather, this provision about future 
organizations in future, deter future organizations in future attacks was struck from the authorization. What the administration is now doing is interpreting, quote unquote, once again, without seriously, a serious lawyer-like statement and analysis, um, uh, interpreting, quote unquote, um, the terms of the uh, 2001 authorization to be fundamentally equivalent to what Congress rejected. Second, in 2012, um, the uh, issue returned to uh, the floor uh, of Congress, um, as um, uh, as was suggested, um, um, and um, the um, um, uh, and Congress and, and the House in the House of Representatives proposed that uh, an expansion of the 2001 uh, uh, authorization to embrace quote-unquote, associated forces for two purposes. One, in determining who the president could make war against, and second, in uh, determining who he could capture. This proposal was self-consciously rejected by the Senate, and the Senate's position was affirmed uh, in the final bill. The only acceptance by Congress of the Associated Forces Doctrine, which was never used in the 2001 resolution, was so far as capturing and detaining um, terrorists. So if you are a terrorist involved in, with an associated force of Al-Qaeda's and, uh, and we grab you, we can treat you as a legitimate uh, uh, prisoner under the AUMF. However, and this is the legislative history once again, the Associated Forces Doctrine was explicitly rejected so far as expanding the president's war-making power. So uh, these were the legal arguments I presented uh, along with uh, my fellow counsel, David Reams, uh, to the Court of Appeals. Um, uh, and uh, our, assert, our basic claim is that, at the very least, the president has a responsibility to present an opinion explaining why these very serious legal problems, both with 2001 and 2002, should be overcome. No such opinion exists. We cannot... We cannot accept a situation in which the president, in a single paragraph, asserts that 2001 and 2002 covers his new war of 2014 without actually giving a serious opinion. Um, that's in the, in the absence of such an opinion from the executive branch, it is absolutely incumbent upon the courts of the District of Columbia and perhaps the Supreme Court, as this case proceeds, to, be, to explain whether there is or is not a satisfactory legal justification for the president's unilateral action under the War Powers Resolution. No serious 
judicial tribunal in the executive branch has made this effort, and we and, and if and if the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals refuses, we are in a, a, a situation, frankly, of lawlessness, by which I mean, you know, what the law is is serious reasoning, not mere assertion. I want to just. Uh, conclude by putting one historical, especially given uh, this podcast, one historical note. Uh, the foundations of, of this case go back to 1802 uh, and a decision, uh, Little versus Bream, uh, rendered by the Marshall Court one year before Marbury against Madison. Uh, captain Little was a, a captain of one of our six uh, naval uh, 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 ships at that time. And uh, he uh, was uh, 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 on the high seas enforcing uh, uh, the first uh, limited war uh, in our history, the Quasi War with France. In uh, 1799, Congress passed a statute um, uh, 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 authorizing the uh, naval ships of the United States to enforce the embargo on uh, France uh, by seizing ships that uh, left the United States and went to France. Uh, John Adams, in his instructions to the Secretary of the Navy, uh, however, went beyond this command a statutory command, and said, oh, by the way, you can also see ships if they're coming from France to the United States. And also you can see ships uh, from a neutral, which are flying a neutral flag if you think they're really American ships uh, uh, trying to escape the embargo. Um, the uh, uh, Captain Little um, saw uh, a ship called the Flying Fish to flying the Danish flag, and he sort of thought that it carried... Uh, uh, embargoed goods, which it did, by the way, uh, and he seized it, and he sold the goods, uh, as he was instructed at the nearest port, which was Boston. Um, and he was sued by the owners of the goods on the ground that he had violated, um, uh, that his action was unconstitutional and lawless. Um, uh, uh, John Marshall in this 1802 case, uh, John Marshall uh, began by saying, uh, you know, uh, a, a Little responded, well, listen, I'm following the orders of the Secretary of Navy, who is following the orders of President Adams and Commander-in-Chief. Um, uh, the uh, owner, uh, uh, and uh, if you refuse, if you don't, if that isn't good enough, then you're going to destroy military discipline. And John, and Marshall uh, uh, begin began as he indicates in his the head note to his opinion um, uh, by saying you know I was initially impressed by this but my colleague all my other colleagues on the court were not uh, uh, they thought it was fundamental that the lawless uh, that uh, uh, the commander in chief uh, law uh, illegal orders under the under the congressional statute. Uh, cannot uh, transform an illegal act into a, a legal act. Now, I want to say uh, that this was a, uh, a foundational decision uh, and part and parcel of 
the project of Marbury against Madison itself. Uh, What Marbury and Madison holds is that civilian officials of, that is, the President of the United States and Congress and the state's officials have to recognize the supremacy of the Constitution above their own actions. What Little Against Bereem says, holds, is that military officials have to recognize that in the United States, the president is not the king of England who, can, who is the commander-in-chief, that it's Congress that is, has the war power, and that the president's orders that are inconsistent with congressional restrictions are illegal. Now, the response of the government to this claim is, oh no, this is just a case about whether the, uh, uh, of torts, uh, uh, whether uh, a, 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 a military official is personally liable when he acts illegally in a tort action uh, uh, brought by the owners of the goods who are saying, you, Captain Little, have to pay us. I say, no, that this is just as this is not a tort action, or to put it another way, that uh, just as Marbury against Madison is not an action for the technical writ of mandamus, but a, fund, a statement of a fundamental principle, so too is Little against Bereem a, not a merely a, an action for whether an officer acting beyond his, the scope of his uh, rightful command is personally responsible for damages. This is a fundamental, uh, this is an early case that raises the fundamental principle, which is that the President of the United States cannot unilaterally transform, be, go beyond the limits on war-making imposed by Congress. And just as the 1799 statute imposed limitations in this first limited war against France, so too does the War Powers Resolution impose general limits on the uh, unilateral war-making powers of the president and that the fundamental Marshallian principle of the supremacy of the Constitution uh, is very much at stake. Thank you so much for that. Chris Bruce has made many arguments, including the fact that there is a dispute about what precisely Congress intended in these authorizations. Uh, How should courts evaluate disputes between the president and Congress about what Congress evaluated? And what do you think the correct resolution to the case is on the merits and also whether it should be dismissed as a political question? So uh, there's a lot there. I will try to, uh, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll try to tick through some just quick responses to to Professor Ackerman's uh, comments. One, um, and I think there's four categories of things I'd like to comment about. First, on the 2001 AUMF, um, I think that uh, just a couple points. One is that uh, there's a separate argument about whether Congress's appropriations uh, with full knowledge of the executive branch's theory under the 2001 AMF constitute authorization. Um, I don't even think you have to go that far. I think you, you could say that uh, making those appropriations with knowledge of the interpretation can be seen as endorsement of the executive branch's uh, interpretation of the 2001 AMF 
such that that would constitute the authorization, not the appropriations themselves. Um, a couple other points that Professor Ackerman made that I'd like to respond to. One is that I don't think the executive branch ever uh, claimed that it was relying on the 2001 AUMF that Congress did not pass, that President Bush asked for, which essentially said uh, against any future terrorist groups. I think that the, the executive branch, uh, through uh, a, a body of decision making that has been very public and is, they've given a number of speeches on, on they've released the uh, opinion uh, with respect to Anwar al uh, they've released a report at the end of the administration, explained their logic. Um, and it, it was always about tying groups back to al-Qaeda and the Taliban, who were the, specifically mentioned in 2001 AOMF. So a, a terrorist group that with no links to those groups would not be covered. And I don't think there was any, I don't think the executive branch ever claimed the authority that Congress rejected. Similarly, uh, 2012, when Congress endorsed the executive branch's interpretation of the 2001 AOMF, Press Rackman's right they did it specifically uh, with respect to detention is uh, an element of war-making power. So if you have authority to detain someone, I think the, that is considered coterminous with your ability to make war. So Congress there was endorsing the executive branch's inter interpretation of the 2001 AMF, as the as did the, the courts in the D.C. habeas litigation. So I think all three branches have endorsed the executive branch's interpretation of the AMF. I think that it, the facts of the, are that al-Qaeda al in Iraq was the United States waged war against them for for the better part of a decade. And um, the group changed its name and, and had some internal strife with, with uh, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, but that wouldn't remove it from the ambit of the AMF. And I think that's the executive branch's theory. Uh, second main thing he talked about was the 2002 AMF. And uh, the main counterargument there was the letter that Susan Rice sent to Congress. I think that uh, what the letter said explicitly was that the 2002 AMF is no longer used for U.S. government activities. Um, I think that uh, was a factual statement about whether or not the, the government was relying on the 2002, 2002 Iraq AMF at that time. Uh, and it was part of a, uh, an effort to have Congress repeal it. I think the facts changed after the um, letter was sent, and the law did not change. Congress did not repeal the AMF. So I don't see why the executive branch couldn't then rely on it again um, after, after sending that letter, which is exactly what the executive branch did. A third point is, and he raised, uh, Press Rackman raised a number of times, the lack of a formal OLC opinion. Um, uh, and, and I can understand the desire for a formal opinion. I just, I'm not quite clear of the significance of it to this case. I think the, the president's obligation is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. It's not to make sure that OLC is opined on a specific issue. Um, or that has written an opinion on a specific issue is probably a better way to way to put it. Um, I think the executive branch has been very public about its its theory, um, it, both in in public statements uh, by the Department of Defense General Counsel, report issued by the White House. Um, they're not legal opinions. I, I acknowledge that, but I think that uh, anyone in the public who wants to know what the executive branch's theory for why these these statutes cover the actions uh, can find it. And Congress, if they so desired, uh, could could seek an opinion or could uh, have the, uh, call the executive branch to testify at hearings or in behind behind uh, meet with them privately to get into further uh, detail about the law. They have not done that, which is just further evidence that they support the, the theory of the case that the executive branch has put forward and that uh, in some sense, the suit is asked, seeking to create a constitutional controversy where, where none exists. Finally, um, the discussion of Little Vibarim. Um, 
I think that that starts getting into the jurisdictional issues we haven't talked about to this point uh, and, and the injury in fact. I mean, I think that the difference that I see between that case and this case is that uh, the, the hook here is the, the hook for standing that the, the, the that uh, Smith has put forward is that he takes an oath to the Constitution, but so does every other officer in the executive branch. And he's not alleging that he's been ordered to take any specific unlawful actions. I mean, in, in Little v. Barim, there was actually a tort suit against uh, the the naval officer there. Um, and the, the he was not allowed to assert as a defense following orders because the orders were exceeded Congress's authority. Smith is, is alleged nothing of the, of the sort here that he would be he would be required to do anything unlawful. He was not he would not be asked to take any unconstitutional action. His his allegation is the president has taken unconstitutional action. And I think the concern and this seemed to be the concern that the the DC I wasn't at the oral argument, but in listening to it, that they were concerned about was that this would seem to. Um, granting standing to Smith in this case would allow any federal officer who swears the oath, which is the same for civilian officials and for military officials, would be able to have the federal courts adjudicate ex ante the lawfulness of that order. And uh, it just seems like that would be a, a big problem given the number of times executive branch officials have to act based on uh, legal decisions made by the president or, or their cabinet secretaries, et cetera. So I think that, and I know we haven't had much time to talk about the standing issues, and we can probably save that for closing arguments, but that's just the last point I'd make, that I think little, I didn't understand Professor Ackerman to say, to, uh, to talk about in the context of the actual question on the merits as to whether the, the AMFs cover the, the action. It really goes more to standing, and I think that there are differences between little and as the district point, little in this case, as the district court pointed out in its opinion. Many thanks for that. Well, as you suggest, it is time for closing arguments. And Bruce, the first one is to you. Why do you believe that the war against ISIS is illegal and unconstitutional? We were at a turning point in our constitutional history. Uh, uh, the American Revolution was fought on the principle that the uh, uh, king cannot make war without the consent of parliament, um, uh, and um, uh, and that uh, uh, the constitution was uh, based on the principle that the president is not like the king; he cannot unilaterally make war. Uh, this is a crucial dimension of our constitutional commitment to limited government. Um, uh, two centuries later, in the War Powers Resolution, uh, Congress reaffirmed the fundamental principle that the king cannot, that the president is not the king. Um, and provided clear rules for enforcement of this obligation. Uh, the crucial question today is whether the president simply can assert that uh, he is following the law without giving a serious, principled justification public and disciplined that will allow all 
serious people to follow the arguments. Mere assertion is not enough. Simply sending out representatives to give contradictory remarks in different speeches is not enough. The rule of law demands presidential responsibility, and when he doesn't fulfill it by providing a reasoned opinion, the courts must discipline him. Uh, and if the court in this case fails, uh, we will be in a new era of unfettered presidential lawmaking. Thank you very much for that. Chris, the last word is to you. Why do you believe that the war against ISIL is neither unconstitutional nor illegal? Sure. So I, I think I'd start off in thanking uh, both both you and, and Bruce for the opportunity to be here. Um, I think I, I agree with Professor Ackerman. It'd be great if there was a different relationship between the, the branches and the, with respect to the war powers. I think that's why Professor uh, that's why President Obama put forth an ISIL specific AMF and and sought Congress to approve it. But um, I actually don't think that uh, this is as problematic, nearly as problematic a case as uh, Professor Ackerman said. I think that uh, one, it, is, it does not have to do with the type of unilateral war making that, that Professor Ackerman is talking about. The president has never asserted that he's acting under his unilateral constitutional authorities. He's He's been clear all along. He's acting under uh, statutes to uh, engage in hostilities against a group that uh, the United States has been engaged in hostilities against for the better part of uh, since 2004, uh, with with very little very little uh, complaint about him exceeding his authority. Uh, two, he never never uh, asserted that he didn't have to comply with the 60-day pullout provision of the War Powers Resolution. So this is not really a unilateral use of force. It's a use of force consistent with statutes, consistent with longstanding interpretations of those statutes, um, and and that's what the executive branch is doing. This isn't a, a case like the end of the Vietnam War or Kosovo or even Libya where large parts of Congress were um, were uh, second-guessed the president's uh, legal bases or statutory bases or, or, or constitutional bases. In fact, it seems like the entire Congress supports the actions against ISIL uh, here. So in, in some sense, the courts weighing in would be creating a controversy where none exists. And I think that's why, and I know we haven't spent much time talking about it, they're going to they're gonna look for jurisdictional grounds on which to dismiss this case. And I think standing will probably be, will probably be the, the, the ground they choose. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris Fonzone and Bruce Ackerman, for a rigorous, illuminating, and important discussion of this fascinating uh, constitutional and legal question about the war against ISIL. Uh, Bruce, Chris, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's Town Hall program. How exciting if you're a lawyer to be able to get your credits from our really interesting and substantive programs. So please visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. And please, this is really important. Rate the podcast on iTunes and other platforms. It helps other people learn about what we do and helps us spread the light of constitutional education. 
And finally, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission and eager to take the time to educate themselves about these difficult and important constitutional issues like you. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Bristol.